Well, good morning. My name is Chris. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, please come up and say hi after the service. I'd love to love to meet you. Um, what we're going to do now is we're going to be talking about how we can put hands and feet and legs to what uh, we just sang about. Well, three weeks ago, we launched a brand new series that we call High Places. And the title for the series comes out of a phrase that we see repeated over and over again in the Bible, and the phrase is high places. Here's one example uh, that we've looked at several times here in this uh, series. It comes out of the book of First Kings, says this, Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And one of the things that we've been looking at again in the service several times over and over again is here's the problem, here's what, here's what was going wrong here, is that... On these high places, even while the people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their what? They were serving their idols. They were serving their idols. Now, I wish I would have had this language when we started the series that I'm about to use. Um, I wish I would have been using this this framework, but I I feel like I've got better language now than we've had even for the last couple weeks. What was happening, the problem here, what was happening at these high places was they were creating their own religion. That's really what they were doing. They're creating their own religion. They wouldn't have said that. They would have said, we're practicing Judaism. But what they were doing is they're creating their own religion. What was happening was that the people that God had called out, he had rescued from slavery, they were creating something new. They were keeping what they liked from Judaism. They were getting rid of the things they didn't like about Judaism. And then they included all kinds of other things from different religions and different cultures that weren't necessarily compatible with Judaism. So they were creating something new. And many people would argue quite persuasively that people attempt to do the same thing with Christianity. That people keep what they like about Christianity, they drop what they don't like, and then they include all kinds of other things that aren't necessarily compatible. And there's a sociologist, his name is Christian Smith, he's written a number of of different things. And he calls this new emerging religion. He calls it something specific. He calls it moral therapeutic deism. He said that a lot of Westerners were creating this new religion. If we had to check a box, we'd say, oh, it's Christianity. But he would say, no, it's not Christianity. It's this, moral therapeutic deism. The moral part comes from this, that people who believe this worldview, even though they might call it Christianity, they believe if I try to live a good and decent life, God is going to bless me and grant me entrance into heaven. When I die, there's the moral part. Here's the therapeutic part. God wants me to pursue happiness, to feel good about myself. And then here's the deism part. God isn't very involved in our daily lives, but he's there when you need him. You see why this is attractive? Absolutely. It's really easy to fall in this trap too. I think all of us do to one one degree or another. Now, one of the reasons it's easy to fall in this trap is there is nuggets of truth embedded in all three of these points. There's aspects of truth in in, in all of these. But if you reduce Christianity to these things, now you've really got a problem. Because you're leaving out some fundamentals of our faith. Fundamentals like this. The fact that good deeds alone aren't enough to overcome the seriousness of sin. A fact like this. That the kingdom of heaven isn't just a someday thing. The kingdom of heaven, it's already been ushered in. It's begun. We can enter into it. And it's both a now thing and a not yet fully realized thing. And we can forget that. And another thing that that this reduces Christianity too far is is that it, it ignores the fact that God is very involved in our lives right now. 
It's not just a call on me when you need me thing. He's very involved in our world all the time. He's always working. He's always at work. And he, and, and he actually warns us against just only calling on him in times of need. And then on top of all this, this moral therapeutic deism, this MTD, it neglects to emphasize the important role that sacrifice and discipline and self-denial can play in bringing you where you really want to go. So, if you reduce Christianity to a religion like this, a religion where you feel good about yourself, that it's just there to protect you from danger, it's just there to help you overcome your fear of dying and provide comfort and guidance in time of need, if you reduce Christianity to these things, you're practicing a different religion. You're not practicing Christianity. You're practicing a religion where you're the star of your own show and your hopes and your dreams and your pursuit of success, as you define it now, become idols. They now become idols. And if you choose to do that, don't blame God if he doesn't answer when you call on him from your high place. If you set up this high place where you're picking and choosing what's going to happen on that high place, don't blame God if he doesn't then answer you like you'd expect. Here, here's an example of that. Um, I, I see people all the time where they ignore what God says about things like this. They ignore what God says about hard work. They ignore what God says about honoring those in authority. They ignore what God says about giving God your first and your best. They ignore what God says about putting aside savings for a rainy day. They avoid what God says, or they ignore what God says about avoiding debt and living simply. They ignore everything God says, and then they, they have a financial mess, and then they wonder, where's God? Where's God? You know, or where's the church, or, or whatever. And they blame God for something that, that he could have potentially steered them out of. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You might as well jump in a lake and then ask God to keep you dry, right? Here's a statement. Let me put this on the, on, the, on the screens. And I would hope that this is a statement you'd agree with, whether or not you're ready to embrace that Christianity is truth with a capital T. I would imagine you'd, you'd agree with this. It is foolish to create our own religion and expect the Christian God to conform to the expectations you impose. How many would agree with that? Right? If you create your own religion, don't expect the Christian God to, to conform to, to those expectations. I believe what we see, these struggles we see in the Old Testament section of the Bible, they're, they're similar to the struggles we face today. It's just that the idols have changed. We may not place a statue of Baal on a physical altar, but we're just as likely as the ancients to keep the things we like Christianity, drop the things we don't like, and then add practices from our culture and other religions into the mix. So what we did two weeks ago in this series is we, we talked about some of the consequences of going our own way when it comes to possessions. No, entertainment was two weeks ago. Last week, then, we talked about the consequences of going our own way when it comes to the, uh, the possessions. And then this week, what we're going to do, we're going to discuss the consequences of going our own way when it comes to our future when it comes to things like setting goals and how we define success, how do we do that in a God-honoring, life-giving way? Well, back in the back of your notes here, each week we try to put a note page into your, your bulletins. And one, one of the things we've got here on the back are some resources we've been recommending along the way. And I want to give you a quote from um, one of the, these resources, a book called um, Radical by David Platt. Now, before I read the quote, I just want to point out the fact that many people might be thinking right now, We've been hearing a lot about radicalization, 
right, in, in the news, in the result of the Boston bombings. Radicalization can be a bad thing if you're radicalized to a worldview that promotes destruction and, and, and all this kind of stuff. But I think the problem with most Christians isn't that we're over-radicalized. Right? I think the problem with us is moderation, I think, is a much bigger problem for us. And this is what he speaks to in this quote. So here's David Platt from his book, Radical. Um, he says this, among other things. He says, we're giving into a dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and then twist him into a version of Jesus that we're more comfortable with. Nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism. A Jesus who's fine with nominal devotion. Does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. Now, quotes like this beg a question, because he's calling for full, all-out devotion and surrender. So quotes like this beg the question, is that wise to do? Is it wise to surrender to a, a, a God who asks for everything? Why would we convert to Christianity if following Jesus won't guarantee a more comfortable and more materially prosperous life? That's a fair question, isn't it? That's a fair question. One that deserves an answer, and let me give you not one, but three. Throughout the series, we've claimed that high places can lead to our downfall. Let's look at three consequences associated with setting goals and a future and a success where we're just freestyling with that rather than asking God to set it for us. So here, here's, here's one that I would say. One of the consequences of just going our way, own way, creating our own religion. Well, if you create your own religion, you're responsible for what? Your own salvation. If you create your own religion, then, then you're responsible for your own salvation. Now, we, we see quotes like the ones I want to put up on the screen all the time. These, I, I could have picked dozens and dozens. Well, I could pick hundreds of these quotes. Here's one from a guy named Bill Mayer. He says this. He goes, I don't get it, thinking of eternity and salvation, all these things. He goes, I don't get it. The thought of someone else cleansing me of my sins, it's ridiculous. I don't need anyone to cleanse me. I can cleanse myself. And then this one, the next quote down is from Warren Buffett. This, he, he made this quote after donating $44 billion to charity. He says, there's more than one way to get to heaven, but this sure is a great way, he says. Now, I don't know how serious these guys are. I don't know if they're being tongue-in-cheek or some of both. But I'm not as comfortable as they are freestyling when it comes to eternity. And when I say freestyling, what I mean by that is I'm not comfortable just saying, I'm going to pick this piece from this religion. I'm going to pick this piece from this religion. I'm going to ignore this. I'm going to add this. I'm going to add this. I'm not comfortable with that idea of I'm just going to make up one and hope I get it right. I'm going to go with one of these and trust it if it seems like it's something that's worthy of putting my faith in. Because I don't have that much faith in myself. I'm going to choose, and this is where I land, I'm choosing to align myself with a faith that has had more conversions from more people, from more diverse backgrounds, on more continents, throughout more generations than any other faith system in history. I'm choosing to place my trust in a creator who didn't just reveal himself to me personally and said, here, pick this, pick this, pick this, pick this, because you're the wise one. You're the one that gets it all. None of these other people have ever gotten it all, but you get it all, so you pick and choose. You piece it together. I'm choosing to place my trust in a creator who didn't just do that. I'm, I'm, I'm putting my trust in someone who reveals himself through his creation, through history, through a people he calls as his own, through the unparalleled life of Jesus of Nazareth and his empty tomb, and through the unequaled collection of ancient writings that we call the Bible. 
That's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go with this. I'm going to place my trust there. And if that Bible is accurate, then our God is not a God who conforms to our expectations. He's not a God who will just bless any goal that we set if we ask him to. He is a God who we cannot put into our debt by anything we do or how much money we give or any sacrifice we make. He is a God of justice and grace to whom all of us owe a debt that we can't pay. One of the other resources we put in, in um, that we recommend here is this book by Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods. This in, is brilliant, especially in its simplicity. He says this, if you want God's grace, all you need is what? Need. If you want God's grace, what you need is need. And that sounds really simple because we all know we've got needs. But here comes the hard part. That kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. All you need is need, but that kind of spiritual humility is really hard to muster because it means, all right, I'm going to trust you with everything. I need you so bad, God, if you're real. I, I need you so bad that I'm willing to trust not only the things that make sense, I'm willing to trust you when you don't make sense. That takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of faith, a lot of trust. In Christianity, we're asked to put our full trust, full trust in God for his salvation. And we're going to provide an example of, of what that looks like in just a couple minutes when we open up our Bibles together. But quick, let's move on. I, I said we're going to look at a couple, three different uh, consequences. Here's a, a second potential consequence. If you're trying to say, I'm just going to go after, I'm just going to pursue my bliss, I'm just going to set my own goals, I'm just going to freestyle on this. And I'm going to do that moral therapeutic deism thing. If you subscribe, here's the consequence. If you subscribe to moral therapeutic deism, that worldview, you're going to be disappointed daily. Right? Right? We, we know this, don't we? How many of you can testify to the fact the world is not devoted to making you happy? How many can testify? Show of hands. Right? The world is not devoted to making you happy. If you subscribe to a worldview where the world is supposed to make you happy... You're going to be disappointed on that daily. How many of you believe, this one's a little different, but how many of you believe there's evil forces at work in our world? How many? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I, I can testify to what the Bible says, that there appears to be a sinful nature at work within us, within each of us. That is my experience. It tempts me to do things I don't want to do. It tempts me to believe things I know aren't true. Now, in addition to this, how many of you believe that hardships can sometimes wake us up and make us stronger. How many believe that? Absolutely. How many believe that challenges and experiences outside of our comfort zone can take us to new levels of life and faith? How many believe that? I'm with you. And then there's this one too. I'd imagine there's a whole lot of folks in here who believe that God still calls his people, just like he called Jesus, He still calls his people to be agents of reconciliation and compassion and justice and restoration. And if it's true that he calls us to that, do you expect that to be easy? Do you expect that to be painless? Do you expect that to always be the smooth road? All this to say, the most common Western twist on Christianity, this this moral therapeutic deism, it helped... It's operating under the hidden assumption that God wants our lives to be free of pain and danger and discomfort. And that's not always the case. In fact, he uses those things sometimes to bring us to a better place. 
Well, if you subscribe to a worldview in which your God or this world is devoted to your perpetual bliss, you're going to be disappointed daily. Because Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. And so the issue isn't whether or not you're going to have trouble. It's, are you going to trust God to help you with the troubles? Or do you want to face them on your own? All right, last one. And this one follows this thought. Another consequence of, of, of going your own way, if you go your own way, you can miss out on the life that you were created for. Even if you're doing the career that God would have you to do. If you go your own way, you can miss out on the life that you were created for. In Christianity, we're taught that we find true life as we give ours away. And those who can do that, you can find yourself partnering with God in things that are even mundane. Brother Lawrence, he wrote that whole book on finding God peeling potatoes or you know whatever that. What was the book? Do you remember? Practice the presence of God. Yeah, I mean, you can find meaning in peeling potatoes to the glory of God. You can, you can find meaning in running errands. You can have these unplanned adventures that God can take you on by just trying to be in the moment and following him. You, you can experience God in parenting, in your relationships. You can experience him throughout everything. You can, sitting around a fire, sitting, listening to great music. You can experience the presence of God all the time. You may not necessarily feel it, but you could be, you could be in his, his, his will. You, you can experience God all the time. It doesn't, it doesn't have to, to, to be something spectacular. And on the flip side of that, in the spectacular without God, it can sometimes be empty. Even if we achieve tremendous worldly success apart from God's plans and purposes, it can feel empty and shallow. Here's an example. How many of you have been keeping an eye on the NFL draft this weekend? At least one, one eye. All right. Keep an eye on the draft. Um, here's, here's what many people would say was one of the best draft picks of all time. This guy went in round six, was it? Round six, I think. Tom Brady, one of the last guys picked in, in his draft. The, one of the, the um, what people would say would be one of the best draft choices. So here he went. He went from being one of the last guys picked to the top of the world. He signed a $50 million contract. He set pages of records. He has multiple Super Bowl rings and dated multiple models. But listen to what he said. Listen to what he said in an interview with 60 Minutes. These are his words. This isn't like pastors just assuming this is what's going on with Tom Brady. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still think there's something greater out there for me? A lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's all about. Well, I reached my goal. I reached my dream, my life. It's got to be more than this. And I would argue it's not because he was supposed to be a pastor or he was supposed to be a worship leader or something like that. It appears as though he was supposed to play football. So it's not about he made a wrong career choice. It's just he's not experiencing God in the midst of it, at least the way he could where he can find deep, rich meaning in taking these talents and these opportunities and, and, and these daily things that present themselves and being able to experience the presence of God in the midst of that. There's so much more to life than most people settle for. So how do we avoid that trap? How do we avoid conforming to an understanding of comfort or achievement or success that comes from us or from our culture and not from God? Well, if we want to pursue the life God has for us, then let's apply this truth that we've looked at each week of the series. We've applied it to entertainment. We've applied it to possessions. Let's apply it now to our future. And here's this truth. Idols can't simply be removed. They must be replaced. 
You can't, if you just remove the idol, something else is going to pop its way back in. It must be replaced. And so when it comes to the idol of future, that's really an idol of self. And we need to replace the self piece with God. God, what are your plans? What are your desires? What would you have me to do? What we're going to do now is we'll look quickly at an example from the Bible, then we'll give you a chance to respond. The example from the Bible comes from 1 Kings 19. Uh, this is fun. I, I've been going cover to cover, again, with the scriptures, reading some Old Testament. Uh, now I switch, so my Old Testament is morning, New Testament at night. And this is just this fun little story that I don't think we've ever opened up to together as a church. It comes out of 1, King 19, 1 Kings 19. Um, I want to mention, too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We always keep a stack of them right there in the back. Please just take one. You don't have to let us know. Don't, don't sign anything. We'd be thrilled for you to take one home. Now, there's so much going on here. I want to give you the running start at it. I'm going to summarize some of what comes before this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at it. This is a fascinating story. Hopefully, you'll whet your appetite to actually to, to read it if you've never read it before or to reread it if you have read it before. All right, here we go. Um, the backstory is this. There's a prophet named Elijah. There's a prophet named Elijah. And he was a standout among the prophets of Israel. Even in modern Ju- Judaism, I, Elijah's memory is invoked when the scriptures are read, when people gather to eat, when boys are circumcised. And in the Passover ceremony, if I understand this correctly, a door is actually opened for Elijah after they drink the third cup of wine in this ceremony. Well, right before the passage that we're about to read, there is a dramatic, dynamic confrontation between Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal. And in this confrontation, some of you have probably been in the spontaneous melodrama we've done, right? In this, in this, uh, in this, uh, pr- this confrontation, Elijah calls down fire from heaven that obliterates a thrice drenched sacrificial altar. The fire is so intense, it even obliterates the stones from the altar. Lightning can't do that. Some nuclear bombs can't do that. This is, this is something God clearly did. And so the people see it, they fall on their faces, they exclaim, the Lord, he is God, which is really Elijah's name, basically. The false prophets are put to death. Elijah's words, get this, Elijah's words then announce the end of the very drought that his words triggered. That's something. And if all this isn't enough, the scriptures then appear to indicate that Elijah outruns a chariot in the subsequent thunderstorm. I know. No wonder Elijah's singled out. God is clearly at work through his life, right? This is a God showing up thing. God is showing up here, right? Then comes Jezebel. Then comes Jezebel. She's an evil queen. She serves, served as the patron of Baal. And rather than confronting Elijah directly, she sends this chilling message that drives Elijah into the wilderness where he, like Moses before him, says to God, kill me now. Kill me now. Kill me now. I've been zealous for you. Where to get me? These are my words right now, not his. But he does say the kill me now piece. All right, these, these people, your people, they've forsaken your covenant. They've established high places where they once set up altars to you. I'm the only one left. Jezebel won't rest until I'm dead. He goes from God clearly working his life. Things aren't going according to his thought of how they should go. And now he's running for his life. If it can happen to Elijah, it can happen to us. If it can happen to Elijah, it can and does happen to us. Where things get out of alignment in our head and we, can, we think that they're out of alignment with the way they 
should be or the way that life should be or whatever. But here's what comes next. This is, this is fascinating. What comes next is God doesn't give Elijah just a good old MTD talking. Well, you know, hey, it's going to get better. And, and really, I, I just I love you. And, you know, I was going to say. Here's what happens. He basically says, and you can look it up. I give you the reference here. Get up. Get up. This is bigger than you. I got two kings I want you to anoint who accomplish my purposes. I've got a man named Elisha who you shall announce to be prophet in your place. What is this about you being the only one left? There are still 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to kiss the feet of Baal. Now, that's a little a condensed version of the backstory. Let's take a look at this account and, and how Elisha responds. How Elisha responds. This is uh, chapter 19. I think I've said this several times. We'll start with verse 18. This is God speaking. He says, Yet I will reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went up from there and found Elisha. Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to Elisha and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. Then I will come with you. All right, let's hit pause. Let's talk about this. Enter Elisha. According to all of the commentators I looked at, all of them said, hey, Elisha had a good thing going when Elijah came to him. All of them seemed to believe that that 12 yoke of oxen belonged to him or his family. And so here he is. He, been by the standards of people living at that time, most of whom lived on a substance living, I mean, he's doing well. He's doing well. He's in charge of this team of, of 12 different folks who are plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. So Elisha has a good thing going. But Elisha had the faith to believe he was being called to something more. Even if that something more looked like something less. Let me say that again. Elijah had the faith to believe he was being called to something more, even if that something more looked like something less. And I, hopefully I told you earlier that we we're going to look at an example, a specific example of, of someone when it comes to the idea of trusting God for your salvation. Here it is. This is how salvation works. God chooses you. You say, I'm all in. That's how salvation works. God chooses you. You don't choose him. He chooses you. And then you say, I'm all in. And that's what we see with Elijah. And the first thing we see is he says, I'm going to go kiss my mother and father goodbye. Now, in Hebrew, it doesn't say the goodbye piece. That, that word's not in there. But it's, it's, that's still a fairly accurate translation because that's what was happening. And I think it's fascinating. Take a look at here. You see how the word kiss shows up in the first sentence? And it also comes up here. The only two places in the entire Bible, all of First and Second Kings. I actually, re- say that over in, in, the, in the book of first, book of first and Second Kings, the only places we, two places we see the word kissed used are there and there. He's the only two. That, that's not a coincidence. It, it, God's doing something there. And what he's doing is he's saying, okay, look at the contrast here. You've got these people who are swearing their allegiance to Baal by kissing him. Even if they don't think they're doing that. Oh, I'm going to serve God in Baal. Or I'm just going to do this so I don't get into trouble. They, they kiss Baal. That sign of allegiance. And here's Elisha. He's getting called away from a good thing. And he kisses his parents goodbye, which is huge. And not only that, let's look at what comes next. 
He's all in. Verse 21, Elijah then leaves. He goes back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment. He took the meat. Some of the translations say he boiled the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah to become his servant. He's all in. It's burn the oxen, burn the yokes, boil the oxen, and then I'm here to serve now. Not I'm being knighted to some great thing. If you want to remove the idols of self, career, accomplishment from high places, there's our example. And here's how I would put it just in some different words. And the last thing I'd encourage you to write down in your notes is this. You want to experience the life God has for you right here. Here it is. Redefine success in terms of faithfulness. Redefine success in terms of faithfulness. Instead of defining ultimate success in terms of setting and reaching personal goals, redefine ultimate success in terms of am I doing right now what God would have me to do? Does that mean working for a church? I think we said that earlier. No. No. Not unless that's what God called you to do. Well, what does it look like? It looks like, God, what would you have me to do? And often when you ask that question, you're all going to have to have a follow-up with God to say, I'm going to need your help with that. In fact, you're going to have to do that because I can't do that. But God, what would you have me to do? And let me just go off script here for a second. And I want to talk to the high achievers here because I know we've got a lot of them in this room. This church tends to attack people. And what I mean by that are the people who you wake up in the morning and it's like a stopwatch is going. You're like, I only have this much time to do this much stuff. And you're a person who does, I don't want to just settle for mediocrity. I want greatness to happen. And, and, and you don't want to settle for just what everyone else sells for. You want to say, I, I don't want to leave stones unturned. I don't want to leave. I don't look back with regrets. I want, I want, I want you know, to make a difference. Let me talk to you guys. Because it's taken me 44 years to, to just start to get this. This is liberation theology for us. Isn't it? Redefine success in terms of And leave the results to God. Because we can't control that. Instead of saying, I will be successful in God's eyes if I do this, if I complete this, if I complete this, all we can do is be obedient. And we trust God for the results. We trust God to do what only God can do. Oh, I can't even tell you how freeing that is. I can't even tell you how freeing that is. It's so easy to look at all the undones. It's so, so easy to look at, Lord, but I'm, I'm falling so short of my expectations. Well, whose expectations? Are, you know? are we doing what God asks us to do right now? One of the reasons this is so fresh is, you know, yesterday was one of those days. Again, just so much, so much. And it was God stuff, it seemed to me. My list of God stuff is like this long, all this stuff. But I was able to be able to say, okay, you're talking on this tomorrow. Practice it now. And I was able to sit with my family around a fire. And have peace with that. Total peace with that. Because in that moment, that's what I was supposed to do. And have peace. Oh, that's good stuff. And here's the other thing, high achievers. 
you know, most of us, we want to get the ladder on the right wall before we start climbing it, right? We don't want to put in all this work and then get to the top and go, whoops, I was supposed to have the ladder over there. God wants to get you. Who better than God is going to help you get that ladder on the right wall? And not only that, let me keep going real quick. Um, Only God can unlock the doors that sometimes need to be unlocked. We can't do that. We can work as hard as we can. We can't open it. God can open it. He can harden Pharaoh's heart. He can say, Pharaoh, let my people go. He can do anything. He can move mountains. He can do things we can't do. Why would we not choose to trust him? Other than really it would be pride, right? That God needs me instead of I need God. Well, next steps. For some, if you want to live this out, your next step is to trust God for the first time. For some of you, if you want this life, if something inside of you that goes way beyond anything I could persuade you of, then your next step is to trust him for the first time. And it begins with that humility that we described earlier, the humility to say, God, I need you to be God because I can't be God on my own. That takes a lot of humility. Humility to say, I'm sorry for going my own way. I've sinned against Thank you for paying the price for my sins. The humility to say, now fill me with your spirit, that I may have your mind and your heart, that I may be guided by your thoughts. And then the humility, and to follow him step by step. Even if the next step doesn't look like a step of greatness, even if the next step looks like it'll take you away from where you want to go to say, I'm going to trust you, step by step. And then the humility to say, God, correct me if I go off course. Bring people into my life who can speak into it. Let your Holy Spirit convict me. For some of you, that's your next step. And for others, yours is to go boil an ox. Go boil an ox. And here's the thing. We've been saying this throughout the series. Oxen aren't inherently evil. Egg salad sandwiches, we determined that last week. They're inherently evil. But, but oxen are not inherently evil. In fact, your ox might be a good thing. But God might be asking you to sacrifice something you love for something of greater value. And for some of you, you're, if you're a young person especially, yours might be career. Your ox might be career. To say, okay, God, instead of going into the profession that I want, am I going to do what you've called me to do, if you know what that is? For some, it might be career. For some, it might be a, a goal. and may not be a huge goal. It might be a small goal. But that goal is going to cost so much time, so much energy, so much resources that would be better set somewhere else. For some of you, that might be your ox. For some of you, it might be the spotlight where you want people to look at you and you want to be elevated and and you spend way too much of your emphasis trying to get the world to make you look good. What's this? Selfies. How many gazillion selfies are they saying people are taking off? You know, looking at their cell phones, taking pictures. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Maybe your ox is to not have people look at you anymore. Maybe your ox, I'm saying that strong. Maybe your ox is not to, to spend hours on your Facebook page. Maybe yours is to say, God, what would you have me to do to make this world a better place? What would you have me to do to help elevate someone else? What, what would you have me to do to, to, to encourage, to support, to get out of the way and let you take center stage in this world. For some of us, we got an ox to cook. And one of my sources, this was so good, one of my sources commented that what Elijah did was really a celebration. When he was slaughtering that, it wasn't, it wasn't just so much of a, I'm doing this, God, to show you how much I'm caring. It was, like a, it was a celebration. I'm being called by God. I'm being called by God for this. I'm going to celebrate. That's what some of the commentators said. 
boy, what Elijah was doing by worldly standards seems so foolish. But, but here's the thing. And I get this picture in your head. Elijah's job, as successful as the world thought it was, he was following oxen. What's the view like from there? Right? My life is so great. I'm in charge of 12 teams of oxen. What's your view like from there? God wanted, was able to give Elijah a chance to see above that. To go, what would my life be if? What would my life be if I surrendered everything to him? He gave him a vision. The devil would love for you to see the dead ox that right now you're saying, I can't give that up. The devil would love for you to focus on the dead ox instead of the life he's calling us to. Well, we're going to close today with a song I first heard on the radio a couple weeks ago. And my family is really upset with me because I've played this song like 5,000 times now in the last two weeks. It's a song called Steal My Show. And, and it's almost embarrassing to put it in front of you because it's kind of this little poppy kind of thing. And it's not, but the message I needed to hear that. It was so good to hear some people come up afterwards and say, I needed that too. The song is real simple. It's, it's This artist is singing about a concert that he's got coming on. And what he's saying is, God, you take over. People think they're coming for a show, but what they need is you. So would you steal my show? You come and you take the spotlight and let me step out of the way. And what I want us to do as we close, I want you to, to, to just engage the lyrics and then let the Holy Spirit, more importantly, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And is there something, is there an ox that comes to your mind? Have you been trying to get in the spotlight? What, what is it that God would have you to say, God, would you not just steal my show? I freely give it to you. Here is my life. Here's my career. Here's my future. Here's everything. That's what I encourage you to do. So let me pray for it, and let's play the song. And uh, we'll go from there. Holy Spirit, we, we ask that you would descend on us now. We open this, song, this, um, this, this day with these great songs where we invited you, and we, we said we surrender. Well, Holy Spirit, here we, we ask you now to help us walk that out. What would you have us to surrender? What would you have us to do? Big or small, Lord, may we yield ourselves fully to you, and would you descend on us and speak to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.